This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. Well... We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and I'm delighted to be joined today by a special guest, Brandy Jackler. Hi Brandy, how are you? I'm well, thanks. I'm special. That's exciting. (laughs) You're very special. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is a conversation we've been planning to do for a while. It was actually Tony who originally wanted to do this chat with you, which gives us an idea of how how long we've been planning to have you on the show and how long it's taken us to Mm. to kind of get around to doing it. And I'm kind of aware, I'm sort of, I feel like I'm slightly pinch hitting for Tony on this one, because this is a topic that I think he would have probably been better placed to host a discussion about than I am, possibly, but We'll see how we get on, because this is not something that I know a huge amount about, but it is something that I think is quite a passion of yours. Is that right? We're going to be talking about gaming and Star Trek, and that's something that's quite important to you, yeah? Yes, it is one of my favourite things to do when I don't have anything else I have to do. Mm Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) Well, as long as you're not doing it when you do have stuff that you have to do, that's the main thing. No, I'm disciplined enough to do it only when I have the time, and it does not take the place of things that I should be doing. It's, I make plans for it. I plan for it. You schedule it. Exactly. You you book your holodeck time or your holosuite time. Yes, uh, we we draw lots and then, no, I'm just kidding. It's just me and my (laughs) husband. We don't have to draw lots. (laughs) Do you have to compete over which game you're playing or do you generally like to play the same things or, you you know, is there a kind of... Yeah, no, we have two separate systems. Mine is in the bedroom and his is in the living room. We discovered that many years ago that the only thing we ever had a major argument about was video game time. And so we solved that problem by each having our own system. Very good. Well, that's a, that's an easy solution, definitely. I mean, it's interesting kind of looking at the use of the holodeck as a kind of gaming environment in Star Trek. I suppose one of the big questions that I've kind of come across looking back over some of these episodes is whether the holodeck is essentially something that you do on your own. And obviously there are certain programs that would probably lend themselves to a a solitary experience, or Mm. is it a kind of bonding activity that you do with other people and it's a kind of group experience. And um, sometimes that seems to shift because say, if you look at Julian Bashir's kind of James Bond holo program, the first time we see it, I mean, the only time we really properly see it in our man Bashir at the beginning of the episode, he's saying to Garrick, I want to play by myself. Get out of my holo, get out of my holo suite. You know, you weren't invited. This is my program and I'm playing it on my own terms. Uh, and Garrick is sort of making remarks about, well, 
you know, what, what is it that you're ashamed of about this program? Why don't you want anyone to know what you're playing? But then by the time that program comes back later on, I think it's, there's an episode in a subsequent season of DS9 anyway, and uh, Odo and, and Dax and Miles and everyone, they're all kind of chatting about how they're going to play together and who's going to play which role and so on. And suddenly it's, it seems to have shifted in Bashir's mind from being this kind of slightly kind of secret hobby into being an experience that can be shared. And I guess that's true with... Um, gaming in the real world as well, isn't it? That there can be a kind of social element to it. There can. The The sad thing is, is that when you're gaming online, on a, like, say you're playing a multiplayer online role-playing game like Elder Scrolls or what have you, you don't always get to choose who you play with. I would only ever play multiplayer anything online with people that I know because there are too many little jerks out there who just want to ro- run around ruining everyone else's fun. And that's not my bag. I don't enjoy that. And so I don't actually play online that often. Another great thing about my husband and I having two different systems is that we can play cooperative- cooperatively online if we so choose. And it's a much more fun experience with just the two of us because we don't even have to get headsets. We just shout at each other between the two rooms because they're right next to each other. So... I once heard an amazing talk from a couple who were, it was the, the title of this talk, this was going back a while, but it was called, Are You a GRL in RL? I, are You a Girl in Real Life? And it was mm. all about playing, I don't know what this, this was like, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe years ago. So I think it must have been, uh, what would one of those kind of old, like one of the sort of first online um RPG kind of games. But anyway, it was this weird thing where they, they were married in real life, but in the game, they were also in a relationship, but they both played as female characters. So they had this, they were talking about sort of what, you know, what their in-game relationship was like and how it related to their out-of-game relationship. And they would sit there playing together, but they would be in separate rooms in the house. And so then, and then they would both log off and they would come back into their real world. And they had this whole sort of alternate identity, alternate relationship, really, because their characters, as I say, were in a relationship, albeit a, a different relationship in the sort of virtual world. But I guess that sort of plays into one of the things that is part of the appeal of gaming. And certainly when we look at the holodeck, part of the appeal of the holodeck, which is the idea of escapism and kind of, I, I guess that idea that, you know, Bashir should be able to indulge his fantasy life, whatever that is, without feeling judged for it or without, you know, other people questioning it. But the, that idea of kind of it being an experience, which is about sort of living a life that is not your life somehow. Yes. That's a big part of gaming is everyone wants diversion from time to time. Everybody Everybody at one time or another in their lives thinks about what it would be like if they were a different person, if they were in different circumstances, etc. And gaming is a way to get that sort of itch scratched, I guess is the best way to say it. And so you can go in and do things that you never could in real life, whether it is because this is a completely different world or a completely different time period or what have you. So you can get that exposure to something outside of yourself and have some fun. Also knowing that there are really no real world consequences for what you do in a game. However, I'm the kind of gamer that I can't be horrible in a game. I have tried and I can't do it. It made me feel physically ill. So I'm one of those people that's still a goody goody, no matter what I'm doing. (laughs) That's kind of interesting. And there must be some games that reward that and others where it makes it 
an awful lot harder. I mean, yeah. you, you know, where like the easiest course is to go in sort of all guns blazing or whatever. But, you know, I mean, I know there are a lot of games where you can sort of choose. Are you going to play a more sort of stealthy approach or are you going to play a more sort of, you know, action oriented approach and so on? And, and definitely I can see that would, you know, maybe that taps into your personality i have to say i always with those kind of games have gone for the kind of more straightforward approach and then sometimes later on have sort of thought oh, actually i wish i had tried the stealthier approach but it seems like more work somehow it seems like <laughs> more, more more like hard work more like the real world you know creeping around and, and kind of reprogramming things and doing that kind of thing rather than going in and you know firing off all your weapons and so on so i don't know if that tells you something about me but you, you know, to me maybe the kind of escapist fun of playing a game is that is the kind of action which is something that i don't really uh you, you know and most of us don't unless we're soldiers or you know i suppose yeah. maybe if we're in some kind of competitive sport boxing or something most people don't have that kind of i guess what you know back in back in history well they're not necessarily in history because we do have people who are you know who fight in wars and so on but hi historically there would have been more violence in people's daily lives potentially than there is now in the 21st century and, and maybe that's sort of one thing that we're looking for in some of those games. But maybe it's just worth clarifying in terms of Star Trek. I mean, the, the way that I'm sort of framing this is obviously we see the holodeck in many contexts. We see the holodeck often in a situation that I would not call particularly a game situation, in a kind of static, non-narrative environment, basically. So so we see, for example, Sandrine's in Voyager, you know, the French bar. We see the, the resort programme, the Neelix programme. So we see these places where people sort of go and they hang out and nothing no narrative ever happens. There's no real action. There's there's no sort of development. There's no there's no sense of of time passing or anything. And then we have these hollow programs or hollow novels. They're often called, which obviously you know sort of makes you think of, a, of very much of the idea of a narrative. But essentially, they seem more like a game where you're kind of guided along a sort of narrative path. But there might be choices along the way as to as to where that goes depending on what you do the interesting exception i think is in deep space nine with vix we see vix lounge which is very much a kind of non-narrative non-gaming environment it's totally a you know it's, it's a place that you go to hang out and then in the episode bada bing bada bang suddenly it turns into a game and they have to kind of jump through a set of hoops and they have to kind of face these challenges and so on in order to sort of kill the narrative so there's this weird sense that actually in that episode it seems like they don't really want the game. They just want it to go back to how it was before, where they could just hang out and, yes. and drink and, you know, socialise and not have to go through, you know, feats of bravery or ingenuity or whatever. So there's that kind of interesting twist there where almost the, the what you would assume, I think, or I would assume that the holodeck is more fun when you're kind of playing something rather than just being somewhere is kind of turned on its head. They don't want that by that point. They just want to kind of, you know, kick back and enjoy some nice music and, and a few drinks. That is very true. But Vic is not your typical holodeck person at all. He is, he grows and learns as the, as Deep Space Nine goes on to the point where he's just as real as anyone outside of that program. And so, so yeah, when this thing that was supposed to be sort of like a hollow novel uh, starts happening, they're just like, oh, oh, no, 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 no. We want our Vix Lounge like it was because Vic knows them. Vic's program could be changed by these events. The, he could be killed. He could I mean, be killed. You know, potentially. Yeah. And so I totally understand with and agree, uh, agree with what they did because that was a place where they could all just be themselves and just relax. And there were no, there were no expectations put on them 
other than to just be there and enjoy themselves. And sometimes that's all you want. And that's why Vic's Lounge was fantastic. Sometimes you want an adventure. Sometimes you just want to sit and listen to music. You can do all of these things in the holodeck, which is why it's so amazing. And it's, it's something where you can recreate events for a trial. I mean, there's just so many uses for it going beyond just basic gaming. Mm, absolutely. And I, and I guess, I mean, one of the things that, that watching some of these episodes made me think of is there are elements of the pleasures involved in using the holodeck that are, are not just the kind of, the, the gaming element is part of it, but there's also the kind of, there's the dressing up, there's the kind of experiencing it, there's the kind of awe at the manufactured environment, which you do get in games. I mean, I've had that in games, for example, I mean, I played a few years ago Bioshock Infinity, for example. That was a game where where really there was an element of kind of just looking around and taking in the environment aside from the kind of action. Do you know what I mean? And also, you know, with a game like that, the the, uh, I'm not going to give away any spoilers in this instance, but, you you know, a a plot that is quite engaging and quite interesting and quite complex and, and very much like a novel and has a kind of, you know, a real kind of structure to it and twists and turns and so on. But part of the pleasure, like I say, I think is almost that kind of, just exploring this world and certainly that's something that you see in some of the particularly the earlier holodeck episodes i mean i'm thinking of the big goodbye for example we get picard just sort of wandering around and saying oh it's so realistic i can't believe it you know look at this and (laughs) and they're all they're quite it's quite embarrassing almost how sort of i don't know sort of naive and kind of unguarded and joyful they are in their experience of it but at the same time there's something quite appealing about that and you know everyone wants to join in i mean it starts off being again a bit like dr bashir it starts off being picard's program and soon dr crusher's coming along and then data wants to come along and then they've invited the you know literary historian or whatever he is to come along and they're all just going oh my god i can't believe it look at this you know isn't this incredible and the thing it reminded me of in a weird way particularly with the dressing up and so on is i don't know more so than computer games, because I, like I say, I don't play an awful lot of computer games. But I don't know if you have in the States, we have this thing here called Secret Cinema, which is a, basically, they, they, they screen a, a film, but that's the, the end of the night. So you, you buy a ticket. They're quite expensive. They're like 30 or 40 quid. You buy a ticket and you go along and you'll get instructions beforehand as to what the kind of, what the period is, what kind of clothes you should be wearing. Sometimes you might be sorted into different groups in some ways. They'll say, they'll tell you, you know, you have to wear a blue scarf or something like that, but you don't necessarily know why. And you get these slightly kind of cryptic instructions or sometimes kind of missions almost to say, you know, you need to go and talk to this guy and try and work out about this. And then you arrive at this, at a location, which is always has been trans- completely transformed. You know, it's a kind of an abandoned warehouse or, or a kind of derelict office block or something like that that they've transformed. And you go through this amazing experience of, you know, you enter this kind of world. Everyone is in that period dress. You know, they hire hundreds probably of actors for each one of these shows. And for about, I don't know, like maybe three hours before the film, and you still don't know what film it is that you've bought a ticket to. That's the, that's the <laughs> other thing. You just wander around this world and people interact with you. So, you know, I went to one, for example, that was, it, it turned out at the end of the, of the evening, the film was The Third Man. And I had sort of worked that out after about two hours of wandering around this bizarre environment, interacting <laughs> with people that, that something twigged at the back of my mind. I thought, I'm pretty sure I've seen this film. And, and sure enough, it was the one that I thought. But a large part of it is just this pleasure of kind of exploring this environment they've created and interacting with these people and sort of trying to work out what's going on and the dressing up and you go with your friends and it's a kind of, you know, it's a whole experience. And it absolutely is the same kind of pleasure, I think, that 
you, you know, we see, uh, say, with Bashir and his friends saying, OK, who's going to play what part? And we're going to go and, you know, we've got a new chapter for the James Bond story and we're all going to go and enjoy it together. It's it's definitely got that kind of quality and it's it's definitely got that kind of idea of escapism and being some, you know, being someone else for the evening. You know, you're given a character and having to kind of play along with that. And obviously, you know, that appeals to people who are who are actors or performers or whatever, but it appeals to everyone. And, you know, even people who wouldn't normally go in for that kind of thing absolutely love it and they can't yeah. get enough of it. Oh, I wish we had something like that here. If if there is something like that here, they certainly don't do it in Utah. So Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you should set one up. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I don't... Quite a lot of work, I think. But, I was just yeah. going to say, I do not have the time to, to put in mm. the amount of work <laughs> that it would yeah. require to make that a great experience. So, mm. But that sounds fascinating and wonderful, and I wish that I could do something like that. Maybe someday. They might have it in some big city like L.A. or New York, but if they do, I don't know about it. So mm. if anyone does know about it, please get in touch with me. <laughs> Mm, absolutely. I guess, in, you know, in, in Star Trek terms as well, of course, we have cosplay. I mean, you know, at conventions, there's, and there isn't necessarily a game involved there, but there is that idea of, of dressing up and going out and kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of being someone else. You know, you're not necessarily being someone else, but you're, you're putting on a persona to some extent or a kind of, you know, I mean, I suppose the same way you are on Halloween or whatever, you, you know, you're dressing up as someone else. But the kind of, that that's something that in our society we don't do in our regular lives, if you know what I mean. That's that's kind of an exceptional thing that we get to do, to pretend to be someone else for a while. Yeah, and I do dress up for Comic-Cons, so yeah. Yeah. Been yeah. there, done that. I, I always do it my own way, though. I'm not good at being, like, super screen accurate or comic book accurate. When When I do cosplay, I usually put my own spin on it because I'm not good at being really super screen or comic book accurate or what have you. But I did do a steampunk Wonder Woman last year, and really enjoyed it. A shield is very, very effective at getting people out of your way because all you have to do is just nudge them. You don't even have to hit them, just nudge them. And they're just, they're, they part like the Red Sea for you. <laughs> well, that sounds amazing. Very Absolutely. Effective. I mean, I, I think it's something, I guess it's something that we don't get to do often enough in a way uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in our sort of everyday lives. And, you know, Star Trek characters are lucky. They get to head off to the holodeck, holodeck, uh, you know, several times a week by the sounds of it. I mean, you know, if you've got the spare time, that's that's where you're going to go. And and there seems to be a sort of almost an infinite a kind of repertoire of new programs coming out all the time or people designing their own programs and also sort of putting their creativity into that, that you can kind of indulge whatever it is that your sort of particular pleasure is. So, you know, if you're Captain Picard, it's Dixon Hill, which I always thought was such a weird fantasy for him because he seems so kind of clueless about it all in in the first instance by the time you get to first contact you know action movie picard it fits perfectly at home with dixon hill you you know he if anything he's kind of up ramping up the action on the kind of noir setting but um you know season one or two next gen uh dixon hill is it definitely very much seems like an an odd one again i guess with jane where you get her you know her sort of jane eyre style uh fantasy which i always thought was really weird and i only realized when i was i was reading up on this subject this week that actually the reason she ended up with that story which begins to make a little bit of sense of it is they wanted to do a wild west story for her which obviously would have tapped in with star trek as kind of wagon train and and you know all this sort of thing and they decided it would be too expensive largely because they'd have to hire horses every time they wanted to show Janeway on the holodeck and they'd mm. done that with picard like i think in once maybe and they realized that it would be a kind of prohibitive 
prohibitively expensive thing. And obviously they've done that with a fistful of data, of course. Yes. But that they didn't want to be doing that on a kind of weekly or semi-weekly basis. So they ended up with this rather kind of stodgy uh, <laughs> sort of Victorian novel instead. But I, I suppose there is that sense of, you know, every captain has their own kind of, their own weakness, their own pleasure. And I suppose part of it with those two is, it's this idea that they're, someone like Picard is so serious and so classical and so kind of refined and this sort of Renaissance man that it's this idea that he has, I suppose it is a bit of a, it's not a dirty secret because he's not ashamed of it at all. No. But at the same time, it's a kind of, there's a, a pulpy, trashy element to it. Yes. That he enjoys this, you know, and you, we get that again with uh, Odo reading these kind of trashy romance novels or, you, you know, these characters who kind of, their their literary pursuits or their kind of entertainment pursuits seem slightly kind of lowbrow, I suppose. And and I guess that's something that comes across with the holodeck is, is, is there a kind of lowbrow element to it? Or does it work best when it kind of taps into those kind of pulpy, uh, generic, you know, so you've got the kind of noir detective genre, you've got the Western genre with Worf and Alexander, you've got the James Bond fantasy. Does it work better with those kind of quite generic things compared to some kind of more sophisticated literary fiction we don't tend to get i mean we get beowulf but it's very much beowulf as kind of action adventure yeah you know what i mean rather than poetry i suppose right well when it comes right down to it who wants to go live the poem of beowulf nobody they want to get in there and slay things this, yeah it's just getting <laughs> slay the monster yeah and sometimes these things are called guilty pleasures, but I feel no guilt whatsoever at admitting about the movies that I like that are not good. I like some really terrible movies, and I don't care who knows it. And I have liked some really what people would call lowbrow video games, and I don't care who knows it because it's fun. It's just fun. And I think that not everyone needs to play some kind of scenario where it's, oh, it's, you know, highbrow and sophisticated and who cares? Do we need that in our lives? Do we want that? No, not really. No one wants to go be a debutante at a ball, really. They just, they want to <laughs> shoot things or they want to solve mysteries or they, you know, they want to be Laura Croft. <laughs> it's just, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's... Nobody wants to go, you know, learn how to do needlepoint and play the piano in a, in a simulation. That's not fun. Well, that's what I always thought was so weird about Janeway's fantasy, that, you know, here she is, the captain of this starship, you know, out in deep space, doing this, this really kind of heroic mission uh, and this really strong, confident, commanding presence. And yet in her fantasy, she's this governess being bossed around by these snotty little children, basically, <laughs> telling her where to go and what to do. I, I've, I always found that utterly bizarre that that's how she wants to spend her time and, and i think it was kind of like i said it was partly because they couldn't do the western thing it was also i think they were trying to sort of they were always anxious with janeway about you know finding ways to feminize her and her not being too masculine and so on but i think with that hollow program it just really it it, it it just seemed utterly bizarre somehow whereas i guess with picard it sort of it was incongruous but somehow it worked because you could buy that that was I guess that's the thing. It's a, that was a guilty pleasure because he got something out of it. He got mm. to express a side of himself. And as we know, of course, famously, you know, Patrick Stewart always wanted Picard to have more sex and shooting. That was his thing. You know, he wanted more action. He wanted, he didn't want to always be the kind of diplomatic, cool, aloof, sort of um, mm -hmm. reasonable man. He wanted to do more of that kind of thing. So in a way, Picard finds that on the holodeck with Dixon Hill. 
Patrick Stewart finds it by kind of gradually nudging the character of Picard more in the direction of what he wants to the point mm. that, you know, by the time you get to the films, he is kind of action hero Picard. And uh, so in a way, Patrick Stewart sort of gets to play out his fantasy, but his holodeck is Star Trek. Yes. <laughs> and what a great holodeck to play in. I know, because you can do everything, can't you? And, <laughs> and I suppose that's, that's the great thing about Star Trek is it's so diverse. You know, it can be a courtroom drama, it can be a romance, it can be an action adventure, it can be a morality play. And, and similarly, the holodeck can kind of take you everywhere, you know, anywhere at any given time. I guess it's interesting, this idea of the sort of guilty pleasures or whatever, because a lot of these episodes that are the kind of you know, these kind of holodeck episodes. I mean, there's a sort of stereotype about Star Trek that you go to the well too often with the holodeck, that it's kind of, it's an easy option. And I was slightly dreading spending a week watching holodeck episodes. I was thinking, you know, is this going to really like kill it for me? Uh, but actually, a lot of these episodes, they, they, they are kind of guilty pleasure episodes in a way. I mean, like A Fistful of Datas, I absolutely love that episode. It's one of my favourite Next Gen episodes. Now, that is quite a cheesy, silly episode. It's not, it's not high drama. It's not, you know... Uh, great. It's not classic Star Trek in a sense, but it's got a lot of charm. And I think a lot of these episodes they do, um, you know, seeing Data and Geordi uh, doing these terrible English accents and kind of marching <laughs> so around Victoria London. Oh, um, so bad. Or, 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 or you, you know, or Alman Bashir actually works pretty well as a kind of Bond story, pretty much. I mean, aside yeah. from being a Deep Space Nine story, it's 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 very kind of meticulously plotted out i mean it's ridiculous but most james bond stories are, are basically ridiculous in terms yeah. of the plot and, it, and it's it's done with such kind of exquisite detail and affection and kind of and character which i guess is what you get with deep space nine that it really works and um bada bing bada bang i love that episode again i mean a weird episode where the stakes are literally you know kind of like we said <laughs> in this series where the stakes are usually about, you know, are we all going to be annihilated by the Dominion? Are we going to lose the war? Are we going to commit horrific war crimes? You know, is someone going to die tragically every other week? Mm. The stakes in this episode are, are we going to lose our rather nice uh, bar, basically, <laughs> that we like to hang out in when we're not hanging out in our other bar that we also have? And and that, that's, that's as far as it goes. And yet there's enough there to kind of um, propel you know, the episode forward for 45 minutes and to kind of make it seem important. And uh, I think that's kind of a testament to how enjoyable these stories can be, cheesy as they may be, you, you know, that just as the characters, we see how much they enjoy them, that we can enjoy them, we can kind of go along for the ride in a way and, and really make the most of that. I agree. Uh, I had the same, uh, the exact opposite reaction to A Fistful of Datas, not because really? of the subject matter, but because I am so freaking sick of westerns i could scream <laughs> okay. i just and anyone outside of the united states i totally understand the fascination with westerns but, but you my, live in utah so i, I live in utah <laughs> probably yeah and no. my parents watched westerns all of the time and we didn't have cable so it's not like the kids had a lot of choice in this matter and i just oh, got I so okay. sick of it because what actually happened in the Wild West is very different from how it's romanticized in films and television. And so I just, uh, I got, I got to the point where I just couldn't appreciate Westerns anymore. And there are exceptions to that rule. Basically, if it's a Western with Clint Eastwood in it, I'm going to watch it. But for the most part, I just get so tired of it. It's just the same tropes all the time. And I just don't, like it. 
I did enjoy the story of what happened to the holotech and how they had to figure out how to defeat all of these datas. I did enjoy that part. But I'm like, oh, please, Deanna, please do not try to do a Southern accent. It is terrible. Do not. <laughs> don't do that. It's awful. <laughs> so, you see, even, even Marina Sirtis in that episode, I find quite charming and quite, I mean, like, oh, I know it, it's, it's no, in she- Congress, it's mad, but it's like, you know, why would Troy be able to do a no. decent kind of, you know, it, it's, I don't know. It's just, there, there's, I don't know. And I suppose that's the thing about a lot of these uh, holodeck episodes is they sort of do push the characters, they push the characters out of their comfort zones, but yes. you feel like for the actors, actually, they're, they're a great uh, relief in a way. Probably oh, it's, it's yes. enjoyable to be in a different location, not to be on the bridge, you know, for the whole time to be able to go out, especially if you get to go on location, like to the Wild West sets or whatever, you know, and even if it's, even if it's not on location, if it's in, a, you know, just a, a new set and a different environment and new costumes and all of that, I think there's a, definitely you can see there's a degree of pleasure in that and that that kind of rubs off in a way. Yes. But it's interesting when you were saying about the, the real Wild West being much a much darker story, a much nastier story, a much grittier story, and so on. It sort of ties in, in a way, I think, with this sort of question, which hangs over gaming, and also, I think, to some extent, hangs over the holodeck, about is there a kind of dark side to this? You know, Garrick says to Bashir, is there is there something about your psyche that this programme reveals that you don't want people to know about? Is there something kind of shameful about it? I mean, obviously, with computer games, especially kind of action-oriented uh, computer games, there's always been issues around violence and you know, when there are, uh, say, a school shooting or something, there'll be lots of people saying, you know, is, is it the computer games that are making people violent? And then the other side of that is people saying, well, are the computer games an outlet for violence? And we see that in Star Trek, I guess, with the Herogen, both in um, The Killing Game. Yes. And then in the subsequent episode in Flesh and Blood, both of which sort of tie into this idea of kind of the sort of video nasties and the kind of, you know, the idea that you can use, almost abuse the holodeck technology. We, we see it in Deep Space Nine with sex because we see that, you, you know, they have this Vulcan love slave programs. We have these basically pornographic holosuite mm. programs that we are hearing about, even though we don't generally see them. There's that episode where Jeffrey Coombs plays that character who is trying to get a kind of, get major, steal Major Kira's likeness so that he can yeah. uh, use her as a sort of holodeck prostitute, mm-hmm. which is pretty you know, nasty territory in a way. And then in terms of violence, we see it very much in those Voyager episodes where it's all about the kind of, this sort of sadistic pleasure almost that the Herogen are taking in killing these people over and over again. And by the time you get to flesh and blood, you see these holograms have been sort of traumatised by it and have been radicalised by putting through that. So I suppose it sort of ties into this idea, is there something, you know, quite ugly in a sense about our desire to play out these sort of action scenarios and is there and are there limits to what you should allow people to do in a game i mean you were saying when you play you you, your sort of real world moral compass is intact when you play the game so you don't feel uncomfortable about doing or you 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 don't do things that you would feel uncomfortable about i mean i have to say i've sort of had situations (laughs) you might think this is mad but like not so much about killing people because usually in a computer game there's a reason you know, e- either they're zombies or something. So there's a, so, say with the game Carmageddon, I remember there was this big controversy of basically running over pedestrians, mm. but it was okay because they were zombies. So they made them green and they, and they told you they were zombies and then it was, it was legitimate to, to run those people down, which obviously in another situation would be unthinkable. But, but typically there's, there's a kind of reason, you know, that they're, they're trying to kill you or whatever. So there's a kind of a narrative that makes sense of the reason that you're acting out these acts of violence towards them. 
But the game that I found the hardest to go along with that with was the the recent rebooted Tomb Raider games. And it wasn't killing any of the bad guys. It wasn't shooting any of the, you know, any of the kind of enemies. It was the fact that in order to gain, I think, experience points or something, you had to kill animals to hunt and eat them. So you had to, you know, shoot these deer that are wandering around in the forest and so on. And I actually found that much more problematic because in the in the kind of you know, that's something I would never do in real life. And in the framework of the game, it was you know, they were they were innocent in a sense. They were they were not they were not attacking me. They were not a threat to me. It wasn't even like in the original Tomb Raider where there are animals who are kind of, you know, dinosaurs coming to attack you or whatever and you're and you're sort of trying to defend yourself. So for me that was a kind of line that I felt like the game sort of forced me to cross and I felt slightly uncomfortable about. But obviously different games have different ways of of sort of pushing those boundaries and kind of encouraging you to do things that you maybe certainly wouldn't do in real life or that maybe you feel uncomfortable about. Or for some people they don't feel uncomfortable about it and they, you know, they enjoy transgressing those boundaries. Yeah, that's a fair point. I had the same reaction to killing animals in Tomb Raider. And even Lara's first reaction when she has to do it is, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, but she had no choice. She had no supplies. She had no food. Uh, She had literally no choice. It was about survival. And it still didn't, it didn't feel good, but she took no pleasure in it. So that was, that was the difference for me. But uh, yeah. Mm. Some people have talked about in those games, and this goes right back to some of the early Tomb Raiders as well, the kind of impact of... I guess just because we were talking about flesh and blood and these characters dying horrifically and so on, but mm. that the, the way that Lara dies in the Tomb Raider games, that there's an element of kind of, some people feel there's an element of sort of torture porn about it somehow, that it's sort of, it's, it's very kind of horrific. It's very sort of, and I think that's definitely true with the newer Tomb Raider games as well, that there's something quite kind of grisly about it. And I've seen people sort of debating, is that... It, are you meant to be sort of almost relishing these repeated deaths or is the grisliness to kind of make you feel unpleasant and, and sort of, you know, to feel something? I suppose that's the thing is, whereas typically in a computer game, you know, you, you die, you get another life, you die, you come back, you respawn, you, you, you know, death is a very kind of um, a meaningless concept in some ways because there's, you know, that you usually at least have more than one life. And, and typically there are kind of save points and so on. It's these days, it's very unusual, I think, to have a game where, as it was in the sort of earlier days of gaming, you, you know, you died and that was it. You had to go right back to the beginning and start again. If you think of like Super Mario Brothers or something, mm, yeah. um, you know, you'd be playing for hours to get through it. And if you died, you'd go right back to level one and, and start again. Whereas these days, I think there's much more of an emphasis on kind of your, your death has a limited reality in a sense but that maybe one way of getting around it is those kind of rather horrific uh, sort of cutscenes, which which do sort of... I, I can sort of see both sides of that, because I think they do they do seem to sort of take you out slightly of the, of the gaming experience somehow. I suppose it's because your perspective has shifted, you're kind of stepping further away somehow, and, you, and you're seeing something that does seem like it could be in a horror film or something. Mm, I, I can see that point. I, I never found it to be offensive in any way, probably because it all depends on what kind of person you already are as to how you view these scenes. There's, we, we talk about safety and stuff like that in real life all the time, but the fact of the matter is there is no safe. There is nowhere you can go on this planet where you're not at risk of dying from something. 
And every, er, every area of the world has different risks, but there's nowhere that's safe. This kind of reinforces it in video games. It's like you made a mistake and the ultimate consequence is you have a grisly death. And to me, that's saying, stop screwing up and pay attention to what you're doing and maybe find a different way because what you're doing isn't working. And so what it tells me is something I'm doing is wrong. So what is it that I have to do in order to get through this and continue on the story? That's the way I always just looked at it. But maybe I'm weird and different. I don't know. <laughs> no, I think that's interesting. I mean, I suppose it's a, it's a big question. And maybe, I guess, typically computer game deaths don't feel very real because mm. the stakes seem quite low. And maybe something like that that raises the stakes, even if it only raises them dramatically, you know, even if in practical terms, you're still going to go back and, and, and it's going to repeat over and over again, that it kind of, it's a way of raising the stakes by making it feel kind of uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And and I can sort of understand it because I think for me, it's like, it's it's not when it happens once and then you avoid that. It's when you're really struggling to get past a particular bit and it just keeps yep. happening. Yep. You know, every every it loads up, you try again, you screw it up, you die horrifically. And it's kind of, it, it's the repetition almost becomes kind of traumatic somehow. So I can, I can sort of see that. I was kind of thinking also of, um, I don't know how, whether this relates to any of the kind of, online games that exist in the real world. But I was um, struck by, in Ready Player One, there's a lot of discussion about how, which is, you know, for anyone who's not familiar with it, is a, a novel and a film about this kind of uh, massive online sort of game world, essentially. And, the, and, the, and and all these people are on this quest and you can battle each other and, and so on and do all these things. But there's an emphasis on the fact that if you die in the game, it has really serious consequences because you might have spent five, ten years building up your character building up your skills building up your you know your money and literally uh, and, and say in the film version you see it whenever a character dies all these coins spill everywhere and, and i know you get that in games i mean um where that happens say i uh was looking at um Fortnite recently and and, and that's a game where when you die all your things sort of spill out and, and other people can come and accumulate them but at the same time it's not like you that that game lasts for 20 minutes or something, you know, so it's not like you've built up a huge amount of things. So whereas I suppose in Ready Player One, the idea is it is almost like, obviously the stakes are not the same as dying in real life, but it's almost, it almost is is trying to make it feel like that by making the possibility of death such a massively undesirable thing, because it really, it sets you back to the position of kind of a newborn with no Mm. status, no credit, no, you know, no nothing in the world. And that kind of, which is quite different from the idea of, you know, ironically, in that book and in that film, in different ways, there's this idea of the extra life, and that's what kind of resolves the narrative in the in the end. But that's an idea that comes very much from an, a kind of older model of computer games, I suppose, like those kind of Mario Brothers or like those kind yeah. of you know those old video game arcades where it was very much you know you have one or maybe you have three lives, and then when they're gone, they're gone, and you're right back to the beginning again. And I think that's kind of interesting. We don't really see. I'm trying to think whether we see on the holodeck that kind of idea of death or or failure i mean we don't i don't think in any of those episodes typically because at some point the safety protocols uh <laughs> go wrong and death becomes you know real rather than a game which is another whole you know topic frankly yes uh, but we don't really see we, do, we don't see the player you, you know say if a group of you go and play together you would think one of you might get killed and then have to go and sit it out you know wait for the rest of the game to finish we don't ever really see that and i don't know whether that's because the narrative kind of to some extent sort of protects the player from that happening 
but but we see even um i suppose in you know the the uh, another spin on that we see in worst case scenario the voyager episode where seska has kind of uh oh, done her yeah. version of the of the jack in the box that we that you get in bada bing bada bang only in her case it's deadly because she's deliberately deactivated the safety protocols and it's this sort of weird game of cat and mouse as to you know whether you can survive it. and then it very much becomes again this sort of sadistic almost like i don't know you know one of these one of these kind of horrific films that involves the kind of sadistic torture of people putting them through their paces you know whether it's sore or i don't know cube or something where where everything's trying to kill you yeah. uh, and that they're suddenly dropped into this thing where it's 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 turned horrifically against them which i suppose is there in a lot of these holodeck stories but but usually that's because the technology has gone wrong rather than because there's some evil person yeah. play, who's playing their own game. And I suppose that's the idea is like Seska is very much playing, even though she's dead, she's playing the game in that episode. And it's a sort of game of cat and mouse and they're the mice trying to, you know, find a way of, of escaping from that and, and surviving. And I suppose it's very different. A game, a kind of typical action adventure kind of game where you're going out there and you're exploring and you're kind of enjoying it all and having a bit of a romp compared to a sort of survival game, you know, and there are, I mean, I didn't play it, but there was that alien game a few years ago, wasn't there? Where you, from what I read about it, you don't have many weapons. You're kind of basically hiding from the alien the whole time. And that is a very different sort of experience to want to put yourself through as a kind of, as a piece of entertainment. Yeah. I didn't want to put myself through that. That's just too intense. (laughs) I had the same reaction to, um, there's a video game called, well, it's a series called clock tower where that's that's the whole thing. You don't have any weapons ever. You have to hide until the monster goes away. And if he finds you, you're dead. And I I did not care for that at all. And I I had the same problem with Dead Space. Dead Space was just so overly intense that I felt stressed out all of the time. That is not fun. For me, especially when you have two other people on this ship where I'm not even going to go into the storyline, but it's weird and bizarre and there's a lot of gory things happening. And I'm just like, why am I the person that has to go around fixing everything? What are you two doing? You're telling me where to go (laughs) and what to fix, but what are you doing? Why am I the only one who has to do this? So, and it got to the point where I think I was probably about two thirds of the way through the game. And I thought, I'm not having fun. I'm not having fun at all. All I feel is fear and dread and not in a fun way at all. And so I just stopped playing it. So I have no idea how the story ended, but there was a sequel. So (laughs) the story didn't really end. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fair enough, I suppose, that, I mean, if you're not enjoying it, why would you, why would you carry on playing? Exactly. um, I suppose there are games where... You, you know, some are, are, are more intense or more kind of um, a scary experience. I mean, I remember playing System Shock. I think it was the second System Shock game. And that's a really freaky, creepy, scary kind of uh, a nasty experience in some ways. But at the same time, it kind of kept me going. There was enough. I don't know if it was in terms of the plot or the kind of, you know, what it was about it. But there was enough of the kind of narrative going forward to to make that sort of enjoyable to to play through and keep going, even though it was a, a bit of a kind of uncomfortable experience, I suppose, compared to a lot of games that are, are more sort of outwardly fun in some ways. Yeah. Well, and System Shock was really the, the precursor for Bioshock. And so a lot of that 
really weird stuff transferred over. But again, it's one of those worlds, like in all of the Bioshocks, uh, one, two, and infinity, infinite, excuse me. Uh, there's just so much to see. And there, and they put little things in there that are just little Easter eggs. And that's what I love about these really massive games. Even if there's really only one or two endings and it's a story that's hurting you to a certain place, they put so much stuff along the way that you can't help but be enthralled in this weird world they created. And I especially really enjoyed that about the first Bioshock because it was it was like playing an Ayn Rand novel gone wrong because Ayn Rand's philosophy is so ingrained in Rapture and it's uh, it doesn't it doesn't work. It's unsustainable her philosophy. It's completely unsustainable. But and and this game shows that. So but it's it's still interesting to find out to to just walk around and find out all these pieces of the story and how it all went horribly wrong. And there was a great balance there I think in that game of the kind of the action side of the game and the kind of developing narrative and the sort of teasing out the narrative and the fact that the narrative was not it was very much not a game you know with a lot of games the narrative happens in the cutscenes and then the ga- the gameplay is kind of separate, whereas that was a game where it was all about, you know, finding clues and finding out bits of information and sort of piecing together this story, I suppose, like a detective would almost, rather yeah. than it being fed to you like a film. And I think that's one of the things with games is sometimes when games try to be films, they don't necessarily work. When they recognise that a game is going to work differently, there's a lot more pleasure in that that reminded me a little bit of those you know like i say these secret cinemas or these kind of things where you're kind of a lot of the emphasis is on really exploring you know go into a room open the drawers pull out the document you know rifle through see what's inside you know find find out what's going on basically and that's kind of left to you to kind of find the clues and sort of and work those things out and you know in, in the case of something like that there's not necessarily even some mystery that you're really trying to solve it's basically just the pleasure of kind of snooping around in, a, yes. in an unfamiliar world and seeing what you can find there. And that definitely is a, is a kind of element of, um, of the pleasure of those kind of games, certainly, I think. One of the things I thought we could talk about a bit, just because we, we, we sort of talked about this idea of dying repeatedly and, and, and sort of getting stuck on a game and getting stuck in a kind of loop of death. But, uh, and obviously then coming back from that, which I guess we see in Star Trek with the reset button, that basically the reset button is like a respawn. It's like a kind of, it's a way of cheating death in that way. One of the things that I thought was quite interesting uh, in A Fistful of Datas, and I'd sort of forgotten that until this until I went back to watch it this week, was they actually talk about the difficulty settings. And they play, they obviously they have a scale because I think they start off playing it at the like level one, and then they end up having to change it to level four difficulty. And that kind of struck me because I... As someone who doesn't play a lot of computer games, when I do play them, I always play them on easy. And then sometimes I think, am I just, and, and I find them challenging enough. <laughs> you know, I don't, yes. I don't, it doesn't mean that I don't ever die or nothing ever goes wrong. But, um, but I'm aware that obviously a lot of people who are serious about computer games probably think that that's it's sort of almost tantamount to cheating to like, to like play it on the easy setting. And I've seen in some games it, that they, they emphasize, they say, you know, play it on easy for the narrative that basically if you just want to see where this is going and follow the story and so on, play it on easy. If you want a real ch- a sort of gaming challenge, then play it on, you know, hard or, or extra hard or, you know, in case of some of these games, there's some kind of ludicrously difficult level sort of beyond the hardest level where, you know, you have to get through the whole thing yeah. without ever suffering a tiny bit of damage or, you know, using 
no weapons at all, but a pickaxe or, you, you know, something like that. Um, but it kind of struck me this idea that like with the holodeck games in that episode, there's like, you can play at different levels and, and Wolf finds it too easy to play on the easy level because he just sort of effectively wins it immediately. And he has to kind of ramp the difficulty up a bit to make it engaging for him. I don't think in any other holodeck episodes that we really see that it sort of feels like the holodeck somehow is able to adapt and adjust to kind of fit the level of the player. I guess with elementary minded data, we get the same thing because in effect, the mysteries are too easy for data, if only because he's read the complete works of Arthur Conan Doyle. And yeah. so what Geordie does, which turns out to be a terrible mistake, is basically <laughs> ask the computer to set the difficulty level to data difficult and therefore creates a, you know, a sentient being and, and you know, all kinds of trouble. So I suppose there's that, there's that element there. But um, it just sort of struck me there's this kind of element of... You know, they talk about them as hollow novels. Now, obviously, a novel is not something... I mean, you can get bored and you can put it down, but it's not something that can defeat you. It's not something that you can find you're not actually capable of finishing. Well, yeah, maybe mm. you can if it's a really dense novel. But, you, you know, <laughs> broadly speaking, you keep going and you keep going and it is all about the narrative and you kind of get through it. And I sort of wonder if there's that element with some of these hollow novels that, you know, say Julian Bashir's uh, James Bond fantasy, we don't see you know, before it all goes horribly wrong, are there scenarios where he makes a mistake and gets killed uh, and then has to sort of restart it? It seems to me it's more likely that the programme keeps giving him an out. So he might get captured, he might get himself in a sticky situation and then something will be sort of dropped in. As as we kind of see in the episode where it looks like him and Garrick are, you know, like it's kind of curtains for them and then uh, Jadzia's character comes in and, and turns out to have the key and he he's and Julian having seen enough James Bond films or whatever works out what he has to do he has to sort of seduce her and then get the key off her and so on and he's able to sort of see the clue that that's their way out of there and I guess in the context of the game that the holodeck is kind of presenting him with that is sort of it, it sort of feels like the computer is sort of saying well we're going to push you we're going to test you we're going to make it difficult but then we're going to give you an out we're going to give you a little hint, look, here's, here's a solution here. And in worst case scenario, of course, it's Janeway doing it kind of in real time programming, basically programming in, you know, here's, a, here's something that you need, you know, for this particular problem that Seska's created. And so there's this idea of this constant sort of back and forth between the difficulty that is going to get you killed or that is going to make it impossible to win the program or win the game, finish the program, and the kind of this sort of impulse to sort of help you along the way, give you hints, give you tips give you give you a way out of the seemingly impossible situation yeah well and and gaming in the real world is very much like that it's not going to just randomly decide no nah, you, you you died in this situation and nothing you do will change that there are always clues there are always things put there by whoever the creators are of said computer game or program or what have you because Sometimes, well, actually all the time, you don't play a video game or go enjoy a hollow novel or what have you because you want something real life. You want something different than real life. And so you don't want the same restrictions upon you as you have in real life. You want to have that reset button. You want to be able to load that previous save and try this again because... We are intelligent human beings, and we can separate reality from fantasy. And that's why I'm one of those people that's just 
that I don't understand this whole argument that playing violent video games makes you violent. There is zero evidence of it. There have been studies done. There's a whole book published about it. It keeps me from killing people in real life. (laughs) Without violent video games, there would be a trail of dead bodies behind me that is miles long. Because it's a way, it's, it helps me vent frustration. And frustration leads to anger, and anger can lead to violence. It doesn't always, but it can. And so I stop it when it's frustration. And it doesn't get to anger because I have it, this outlet. And the thing is, is that most of the time I'm not playing a game that involves in just killing everyone that I see because I can. However, there is a game that I have that I've played with my husband <laughs> that is called Saints Row 2, where you're a gangster and you are starting a new game right after getting out of jail. And yes, that is all you do. And that's one of my guilty pleasures. But that's that's a much older game, and as, has, as games have progressed and become even more sophisticated, I find I don't need that particular guilty pleasure as much. I prefer, you know, being in a post-apocalyptic wasteland and waking up after being frozen for 210 years, which I did not sign up for, by the way. I was being told I was going to be safe in that vault, and they just froze me, and then some people came and stole my baby. And anyway, long story short, I like the challenge of entering into this world that I know nothing about and figuring out what I have to do to A, survive, B, find my son, and C, carve out a new life for myself. And that is extremely intriguing. And despite the fact that there are... Not a ton of endings to this game, which is Fallout 4, if somebody doesn't know. Uh, It's a different experience every time I played it. Even though I largely make the same decisions throughout the narrative of the stories, still, there are random things that happen. And that is just so amazing and brilliant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because it's never been the same experience twice. Not once. Well, that's interesting if if it's a different experience each time. Because that kind of ties into what I was going to ask you about next actually which is i don't know if you i mean like i say i'm not a big gamer i find insofar as i might play the game on easy in order to enjoy the narrative and and, and i I mean you talked about the idea of like getting getting stuck on a game or or losing interest in a game or whatever um but there are situations where i've been just completely stumped by a game and i suppose these days since the invention of the internet that is a very different situation scenario to what it used to be if you know what i mean Mm. because Mm -hmm. you can just google it and find out you know basically find out what it is you're doing wrong and work out what you're supposed to do and there are certainly some games i mean say portal the original portal game for example oh i played all the way through that and there are puzzles i'm sure there were puzzles in there where i couldn't work out the solution i looked them up but particularly the very end part of that game there's that bit where it just seems like whatever you do you're going to die. Like you play, you play what seems to be the last game or the last uh, puzzle in that game. uh, And then you end up being thrown into a sort of pit of fire or something. And because of the kind of sarcastic tone of the game generally, and this kind of quite (laughs) sort of mood that it fits in, you know, you sort of think, well, is that it? Is, Is this basically just an unwinnable game? Is that kind of the point? Is it just like, yeah, you know, you thought you were going through this whole process you know, screw you, you're dead. And then it turns out that actually, and I only found this out by looking online because I felt like this this is just bleak and, and miserable, that actually you are meant to do something. There's like, you're meant to jump 
through a kind of, I can't remember what the answer is, but basically there's a way out of that seemingly impossible situation. And then there's a whole other, you know, sort of final act of that game really, which is where, where it plays more like a kind of conventional game where it's a bit more kind of actiony, it's a bit less puzzly. Uh, and there's kind of a big bad person at the end that you have to destroy um, and so on. But, but I just think like I would never, if the internet hadn't existed for me to Google that, I would have just thought the game had ended and been a bit disappointed by it and felt like that was a bit of a miserable experience. And I would definitely have given up. And there are many other games where I would totally have given up if it weren't for that. And the only thing I can think of is like before the age of the internet, the, the, the similar thing was there were cheats for games. And, you know, if you played your games on your Mega Drive or on your, your NES or whatever it was, you know, some people would say to you, oh, you know, if you, if you press this sequence of buttons here, you'll get an extra life or you'll get an extra this or you'll find a shortcut. Or, I mean, actually going back again to to Ready Player One, there's that whole sequence which is explained much more in the novel than it is in the film about a reference to a game where you have to go backwards at the start instead of forwards and then you end up in this whole sort of parallel, you know, mm. route that enable, which is what enables, the, it basically is what kickstarts the narrative in the in the Ready Player One stories is, is, is the realisation that that you can do that. But the idea of these kind of cheats and the kind of... It, is is cheating cheating if you know what i mean is using these cheats is using these kind of things a bad thing and obviously we see that in star trek with kirk because kirk famously cheated the kobayashi maru which is a game that is meant to be unwinnable it's you know it is basically set up as a kind of you know yes it's a training scenario but it is basically you know it's like war games it is like a game essentially but it's a game that is supposed to be uh, impossible to win which obviously is very unusual i think in you know, real world games, as far as I know, you can tell me, maybe I'm wrong about this, you know, are always <laughs> winnable. But we do see in Star Trek, you know, we see the Kobayashi Maru, which is, you know, supposedly a test of character and you're supposed to lose and see how badly you lose and how you lose. Uh, we see it in Deep Space Nine with um, Bashir and O'Brien keep playing these games, which I always thought was really weird in the context of this huge war storyline where people are dying. There's this whole question over whether the Federation can possibly survive the war. And we know that Bashir, through his kind of statistical calculations and so on with his genetically enhanced brain believes that the federation can only lose the war and the games that he's playing are yes they play the battle of britain which obviously they can win yes they play some other battles which they can win but but the one that they keep coming back to is the alamo which they know they're going to lose so it's a game where they're kind of destined to lose and then they even play the the battle of the spartans at thermopylae which again they're destined to lose and i think esri has a line uh, in one of the kind of late DS9 episodes where she she says to Julian, what is it with you and these, I think she calls them annihilation fantasies. You know, why are you playing these mm. games where basically all that can happen is ultimately you get killed? Uh, and is there something weird about that from a kind of psychological perspective? On the other hand, you know, with Captain Kirk, you get the person who who says, actually, I, I, I defy that. I don't, I don't accept that. And in that context, it's very much, well, the annihilation is is life. You know, the fact is we're all going to die. Everyone is going to face that sometime or other. And is cheating that, is cheating that death a kind of um, a character flaw? And that's definitely the sense you get with Captain Kirk. Certainly in the, you know, prime universe, I think with, in Wrath of Khan, you get a sense that this is, this is a weakness in his character. This is a refusal to engage with the human condition, which on one level is sort of what Star Trek is all about. By the time you get to the Kelvin timeline, it has a slightly different spin because it all seems to be about the kind of pleasure of cheeky Kirk and, you know, how he's doing mm. it, munching his apple at the same time and kind of, and it's sort of played for laughs rather than drama. But certainly in that original version in the Wrath of Khan, it's kind of, 
you know, he's a cheat and that is a serious problem potentially for him. Yeah, it is. However, the, the, what he cheated was something that, that was a test. He cheated on a test. Mm-hmm. He didn't cheat on a game. He cheated on a test. And that is okay. a very different situation. But if the test is a game, then I suppose that's the, yeah. I, I, no, it's I, not I a game. It's not a game. It's a simulation. And there are many possible outcomes, but all of them result in failure because mm-hmm. it's a test of character. That's so, true. But he didn't like that, and so he cheated. He reprogrammed the simulation so that he could win it. And that did is Deanna just cheat cheating on, her... on a test. Well, that's, I suppose, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. <laughs> we, should, we should have Amy on here to, to talk to us about that. Um, it's, I was just thinking about Deanna, obviously, has her, has her uh, simulation where she has, you know, the kind of Kill Geordie simulation. Mm-hmm. And I think, I haven't seen that episode for a while, but doesn't Riker give her a slight, hint you know i feel like there's a kind of element of he doesn't exactly it's not cheating exactly but he definitely says something that slightly nudges her in the right direction which obviously i suppose a teacher might do with a test but oh yeah yeah it's true i guess in that in that situation it seems more like a test and i don't know why that is it seems more like a test than the reason it seems like a test with diana is because it has a, an answer because there is a correct answer and eventually she works out what the answer is and she does it the reason i struggle with the idea of the Kobayashi Maru as a test is because it's unwinnable, because there is no right answer. It, no, that but makes it's a it psychological like a test. To me. No, it's, like, it's yeah, a psychological test. I mean, we don't, well, I guess we never see like, so the, the 50 <laughs> cadets who, who sit that test that week or whatever, uh, you know, what, what is it that's written in their, in their log? I, I, I suppose, you know, it is all the elements of kind of, you know, heroism and, you know, it, it, it is a test of character. At the same time, they know it's not real. I've always had a slight problem with that. You know, it's, it's, no, it's not a real scenario. It's kind of, it's a fantasy. But yeah, I guess, and, and I guess that in, in itself is an interesting question. You know, can you deduce something about someone's, I'm going to call it a game again. I, un- I understand it's not a game, it's a test. But you know, can, can you, by watching how someone plays a game, can you learn something about their real personality or how they would deal with something in reality? And I suppose arguably... You can, or at least we think you can, insofar as, say, if someone is a cheat or if someone is, you know, not even a cheat. I mean, if you think of like the, the DS9 episode where they play the Vulcans at baseball, it's not even mm. about cheating, it's, but it's about attitude and it's about kind of not having a sportsmanlike attitude. You know, and having a sportsmanlike attitude is partly about putting aside your desire to win to some extent in order to kind of have respect for your opponent and that, that kind of thing. And we value, you know, in kind of, in terms of sports and those kind of games, we value those things very highly, but do we kind of have the same idea when we're talking about video games or, or computer games or whatever, that the way that someone plays these games can be, is a fair reflection on their real personality or do we just accept, well, it's just a game, you know, it's not the way that Dr. Bashir handles his James Bond fantasy does it tell us anything about Dr. Bashir as a person in the real world? And does, you, you know, it, or, or it's hard to tell because, of course, often in Star Trek, it stops being a game. So you could say in, in that episode, Our Man Bashir, there's a dispute between Bashir and Garrick about whether to let people die. And Bashir is saying, no, we've got to save them all. But obviously he knows it's real. If it was just a game, would he have the same attitude? Yeah, that's the thing. I think that there are... There are aspects of games that will bring aspects of a person's personality to light, 
but I don't think that the way that you play a video game is the end-all and be-all commentary on what you're like in real life. Because at the end of the day, it is escapism. You are becoming someone other than who you are. And I feel that, yes, I'm the person that is still a goody-goody in a game, except if I'm playing Saints Row 2. Oh, no, I just blow (laughs) everybody up. So what does that say about me? <laughs> it's it's a difficult thing to gauge a person's personality just from watching them play how they play a game. Yes, it does give insights, but it doesn't give you all the facts. It is just part of a puzzle because a person's psyche is massively complex. Video games are just a small part of that. Absolutely. Of course, that's true. Um I'm just wondering whether, you know, maybe in real life it doesn't, but in Star Trek, do these things give us an insight into those characters? And, and partly the reason I'm asking this is I'm, I'm thinking that a lot of the kind of gamers that we see in Star Trek, I mean, I know we talked about Janeway in our holo novel and so on, but it feels like there is a kind of link. And obviously in the real world, there's this kind of assumption that it's only men and boys that play computer games, particularly boys. There's this idea that it's a kind of young man's thing. And in fact, we know this isn't necessarily the case. There are many female gamers. I think there may even be more female gamers than than male ones in, in some studies and so on. But I feel like it, Star Trek definitely taps into this sort of idea, certainly when you look at the kind of action-adventure kind of games. You know, So we've got Picard playing his his kind of gumshoe scenario we've got Bashir playing his James Bond fantasy and these are kind of quite unreconstructed models of masculinity that these men are playing into they're very much about the action adventure they're also very much about the women throwing themselves at you you know whether it's the femme fatale in Picard's office you know he's always covered in lipstick or whatever whether it's you know Julian Bashir seems to have about three or four hollow women on the go at one time in in a kind of classic James Bond kind of style. There's this idea that they're kind of boys games. And, you know, in Voyager, it's Tom Paris, who's the one who's obsessed with the holodeck. Tom Paris is very much the kind of unreconstructed, you know, sort of frat boy uh, kind of of guy on the ship in a sense. And in that program, in the Captain Proton program, you know, they talk about Harry Kim has a line about, he he says, you know, isn't this the chapter with the slave girls in it? You you know, it's just quite an (laughs) unpleasant, again, sort of unreconstructed attitude, especially from Harry Mm. Kim, who you don't really expect that from. Uh, and you definitely see it with, with Paris because by the time you get to the end of Voyager and he's, he's married and he's uh, expecting a baby and so on, he actually says to Harry Kim, I think it's time to sort of put Captain Proton away. You know, I'm not Captain Proton anymore. I'm grown up. I'm a, a mature adult in a sense. And so there's this kind of assumption. It's almost like, you know, you know now I'm putting away childish things that somehow his gaming is this kind of element of his, of his youth and his kind of childishness. And, and the thing it reminded me of, actually, funnily enough, is, is a moment in Star Trek, which is one of my least favourite <laughs> moments in the whole of Star Trek, just because it was, it was, I think it was the point that I would say that my kind of, you know, people talk about franchise fatigue. This was the point that slightly killed my love of Star Trek to some extent, was the moment in Insurrection where Riker orders the joystick in order to fly the Enterprise like he's playing a computer game, basically. Mm. And again, it kind of it ties into this idea. This is this film where, you know, he's shaved his beard, everyone's getting younger, everyone's getting reckless, everyone's kind of acting out. And of course, it's Riker, you know, Riker, who's the kind of most alpha male, who's the most sort of... He's not actually a kind of unreconstructed uh, version of masculinity, because in fact, Riker is quite... 
you know, a bit like Kirk, is better on those kind of issues in terms of the sort of romancing and so on than, than maybe culturally we sort of assume. But at the same time, he is the character who's kind of associated with all of that. And here he is, he's the one who wants to, you know, have, it's even described, I, I looked it up in the script, because if you, you know, if you read Michael Piller's book on Insurrection, he talks about it. It's called A Computer Gamester's Dream, is how the script describes that joystick. Mm. And that for me was the point, I remember watching it in the cinema and just thinking, oh, for goodness sake, this is ridiculous, you know. But again, it sort of ties into that thing. And and it, and it the I felt it was ridiculous, exactly because I suppose I think, you know, yeah, okay, they can go on the holodeck and play out these kind of childish adventures or whatever, but... Riker is captaining at that point a Federation starship in Star Trek. This is a serious business. There are serious stakes. There's a kind of real drama going on, supposedly. And it seems out of place for him to call for this joystick, which immediately puts you into this kind of jokey idea of he's just messing around. He's just having fun. Do you know what I mean? I can see yeah. from looking at you that you're you're skeptical about this interpretation. Maybe no, maybe, no, 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 maybe no, no, you see that no. joystick moment differently yeah. from me. But for me, it was definitely a kind of... I mean, partly I think it was a joke that fell flat. Like, I didn't think it was funny. Yes. And I didn't think it was the right moment for a joke. But also I just felt, thinking about it, it ties very much into some sort of idea of, like, Riker reasserting this kind of macho, um, male, heroic side of himself in that film, I think. That's sort of part of what's going on in that scene. No, I un- I understand exactly where you're coming from on this. But the way... And, and I agree with your interpretation of the events. It is rather silly. But there's this part of me that says, oh, yes, but a joystick is based on the joystick in aircraft. And so when it goes right back down to it, that was that's still the way we control most of our aircraft is with a joystick. So that is true. Just, that is true. And now that is a so, fair point. And <laughs> but, but again, yeah. it, it, the only the only justification I could make for it is that it is much easier to control slight movements with a joystick than it is with a direction pad or with buttons. And when, when you see Enterprise, for the most part, do you ever see a joystick anywhere else with, in the navigation station? No. You're controlling with buttons! And so the only thing I can think of is that he wanted something that would respond more quickly to his reflexive movements. That's the only justification I can put forward, but I still think it's silly, like you do. I I I, I get that. I do, I do understand the rationale behind it, and I and I remember, you know, at the time when I was a kid and I played more computer games, I bought some fancy joystick, and it was it was all you know some Microsoft joystick that was all about you know being more similar to a real you know pilot's joystick or whatever, and, and exactly that. I, I suppose exactly that idea that like especially for a typically male teenager or whatever that having the you know there is. I, mean, I don't want to go into the the, the symbology surrounding the <laughs> no, joystick. No, I know, but, you know, I know. I don't think I we know. need to. There, but there is a kind of fetishization of the joystick as this kind of like, I mean, even the name, you know, <laughs> as this kind of uh, object, this sort of male object, I suppose, in a sense. And mm-hmm. that, uh, that maybe that kind of plays into that. But I, I get your point. I suppose for me, the fact is, you know, we've seen a lot of Star Trek by that point in 1998 or whatever it is. Uh, yes. They don't use joysticks to fly their ships. They, you know, they use LCAS displays and and so on. They use use a completely different technology, and we kind of we know that. And I guess in Star Trek, where it comes up again, there's a joystick in the Delta Flyer, isn't there? Because it's Tom Paris, and it's this kind of unreconstructed retro uh, kind of idea of sort of this this kind of old fashioned uh, idea somehow. And again, in the Kelvin films, you get that. It's not exactly a joystick, but you get that kind of throttle, uh, thing, which again, I have a slight problem with because I suppose partly because it just seems so physical 
unless these are such high tech, such sophisticated machines. And I know you're right, like pilots on planes have joysticks, but they also have, you know, hundreds of buttons and it's, it's all very elaborate. It just feels a bit sort of, I don't know, it feels a bit sort of basic to me. No, I get, I get that. However, there is a joystick on the Enterprise NX-01 in right, Star Trek sure. Enterprise. They don't use it very often, but it does get used a few times when they that do have true. to fly manually. Maybe that's what it is. Okay, fine. Yeah, and uh, that didn't bother me as much. I don't know why that, but I think it's also that that, that it's it's smaller. It's not the the thing about the insurrection moment is it comes up on its own like um, plinth, doesn't it? It's kind of <laughs> yeah. it's almost like you know it's, it's like Games just, it's Master really or something. Silly. It's like some kind of, like no, it's, massively OTT. It's, you know, you almost expect the spotlight to kind of come on, <laughs> kind of dramatic yeah. music, and you you know you know Riker's standing there uh, and you know smoke billowing around him. So I don't know. I, to me, that moment, aside from being a slightly failed joke, is just ludicrous on, on many many levels but but anyway we can we can uh we can move on <laughs> from that um, <laughs> one episode that maybe is not quite as such an obvious one because it's not about the holodeck but i thought it might be worth discussing here while we're talking about gaming uh because it's probably the closest in in some ways it's the closest to the kind of games that we have played you know in our own real world the game obviously you know the, the mm. tng episode the game okay it's not about the holiday but it is about these these things that you wear on your head and they kind of feed right in um and there's definitely an interesting sense in there i mean i know there's a kind of you might say if it's if it's another sort of next gen you know sort of after school special or whatever it it, 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 <laughs> it seems like a sort of drugs analogy and definitely that's that's there but there's also this idea of, I suppose, you know, this idea of addiction and people do get addicted to computer games. You know, famously, you hear it occasionally of people dying because they never leave to go and, you know, eat or, or, or drink or whatever. And that's something, again, that comes up very much in Ready Player One is the kind of wastage of the body if you spend too much time in this kind of imaginary world. There's also that sense in the game because it gives them endorphins of it's almost like a kind of sex toy somehow, that game. There's this kind of, mm. you know, these this kind of especially like the the kind of noises that, you know, Deanna and Beverly and so on are making when they're playing it. There's definitely that kind of suggestion that these this sort of endorphin rush is, is kind of illicit somehow. And I suppose yeah. there's that element there with, you know, again, some of these negative associations we have with games. Do people spend too much time in them? Are they tapping into something kind of illicit, something um, shameful almost? I can see that, but you can actually put that on many forms of entertainment, not just gaming. It is not gaming alone that is causing that reaction. Because if people are predisposed to having that kind of reaction, they're going to find it, whether it's in gaming, whether it's in porn, no matter what is out there, they're going to find the thing that scratches that itch. And for some people, they find it in gaming. For some people, they find it elsewhere. Some people completely escape reality by writing fan fiction about themselves. I mean, there are endless ways to, to make yourself uh, part of that imaginary world and then want to stay there. And that isn't necessarily what happens to the whole. That is a person that has some kind of situation going on in their brain that they do not like the real world, and so they find every excuse they can to escape it. And for some people, yeah, for some people, that's gaming. And so I, I don't think that that kind of reaction and those kind of situations are specific to gaming. People just like to point at gaming because they think it's a base form of entertainment. And I disagree with that. There are many, many levels to gaming. 
Uh, <laughs> literally, yeah, absolutely. Literally and figuratively. I mean, the, 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 the thing that watching the game reminded me of is, I don't know if you ever had this game, and I don't think it really lived up to its name. There was a game called Endorphon, uh, which was Ooh. like an old, you know, old sort of PC game. And it played these weird sort of trippy sound effects and it and it had this it was basically it was almost like a sort of tetris kind of game you were moving this thing around the screen you're trying to you're trying to line up like a sort of mm. rubik's cube kind of like it was it was a puzzle basically but as well as the puzzle there were all these noises it flashed subliminally flashed positive messages at you uh oh it goodness. played this weird music and the idea was that supposedly it was going to actually make you feel happy basically by you know, by, by triggering endorphins, by, by having all this kind of subliminal effect, by this kind of weird uh, trancey music and so on. And so there was this idea, the, the game slightly reminded me of, of that, although obviously it given a sinister tinge. I mean, personally, I, I tried this game and it never, I just found it a slightly boring uh, puzzle game. <laughs> but, you know, so I don't know if it, if it really worked for anyone. Um, but, but the thing that the game did remind me of, I have to say, is there is this sort of element of a time sink about certain kinds of games. Maybe not actually so much the games that you play that are kind of all-consuming where you, you, you know, you've got the sound and you've got the kind of big screen and everything. But the kind of games we play on our phones are very much like that. You know, they are quite addictive, you know, if, if it's Angry Birds or like I play Star Trek Timelines, that is an absolute, a massive time sink uh, <laughs> that, you, you know, that you kind of have to keep going back to the game and checking on things and checking on this and checking on that and so on. And it does become a sort of, I don't know if it's addictive exactly, but it becomes a kind of habit uh, that takes that takes over a part of your life in a way that is not necessarily entirely positive. But but the other thing I was, I was thinking about is um, just in terms of links between Star Trek and the real world. I mean, obviously the games that we see people playing in Star Trek are typically holographic recreations of kind of literature, film, things from the real world that we recognise that we wish were interactive. Obviously, there are a lot of Star Trek games out there. I mean, I played when I was younger, you know, all the Star Trek games I could. The, the one I really remember was I um, the, the next-gen game of Final Unity. Did you ever play that one? Which was like... I um, have not. Well... At the time, it was cutting edge. I had to. I remember because I had to go and buy an extra, however, I was going to say eight megabytes. I don't know if that would even be right. An extra little thing of RAM to stick in my computer to make it play this game. And I was so excited about this. This this actually quite slightly plodding game where you're <laughs> gradually moving the Star Trek characters back and forth around the screen. But they had the whole of the next gen cast voicing it and everything. And it did play out just in terms of the story. It did play out like a nice sort of extra episode of the show then you've got things like obviously you know star trek online which is a much more maybe a bit more like the holodeck in that there's more of an element of exploration it's less linear i mean obviously star trek's done these kind of linear games they were like the elite force games the voyager games which were basically first person shooters with a kind of voyager uh storyline attached but i suppose once you get to star trek online there's that kind of openness and then there's the game i mean i haven't played it because i don't have the equipment for it but there's that virtual reality what is it called? Bridge Crew? Is that right? Uh, mm -hmm. that Star Trek game that's that's quite nice. I've, now, I've seen videos of playing that. Very yeah. much. What's that? Sorry? I, I'm sorry. It's I've seen videos of people playing that. Right. It yeah, is yeah. crazy. Really? <laughs> crazy. Yeah. It's just so realistic. Really? It's yeah. To a, to a level that I just thought I would be falling over because I'd reach out to touch things, but in real life, those and, things are not there and I'd be on the floor. So it's it's extremely well done from what That's, i've seen that is interesting and, and also i suppose the fact that you play you play in a team right so you play mm -hmm. you don't you don't just play on your own which makes sense because i think a lot of the one of the things i found when i have played star trek games before is like with the space combat it's it 
you kind of have to do everything because you're because you're the only you're the player and therefore there's something about it that doesn't really feel very star trek like in a way because obviously with star trek there's a whole group of people you know and, and even you know in, in real life if you think about like a second world war plane or something there might be one person piloting the plane another person shooting the guns you know even something like that there's kind of teamwork involved which is very much how it is in star trek but you don't get that in a game where you're just the player because you're sort of doing it all you know a you're trying to sort of multitask it but b it makes it feel it immediately to me makes it feel more simplistic than it seems on screen where you see like five six seven people all coordinating to try and do something together so that's interesting if the if the kind of vr approach and the kind of teamwork approach makes it more possible to capture that element of yes. kind of collaborative playing i suppose which you, you know which again is something that you get in the holodeck because you know any number of people can join the same holodeck program and and play it together yes well and you know who all you're playing with that's a good thing <laughs> yeah so basically anyone you take into the holodeck with you that's who you're playing with and so you know everyone and you're playing face to face which makes everything a lot more realistic I think, too, that because of the time in which Next Generation and Voyager uh, and Deep Space Nine took place, that they don't have those sophisticated games on the holodeck because those things didn't exist in real life. No one could imagine that you could play a game that looks so realistic that you can see every leaf blowing on a tree. They didn't have that, that kind of foresight at the time. And I think that were we to have a lot of holodeck stuff on things that happened in future Star Trek, like after Deep Space Nine timeline-wise, that we might see more advanced things like that. I, I can't say. But it's, it's kind of a moot point. <laughs> Which, I, I suppose the thing is, like, for, the, for us, the pleasure of playing Star Trek games is, is going into that world, going into this sort of futuristic yes. world. I mean, in the same way as the pleasure for the person in Star Trek is going into Sherlock Holmes or going into, you know, it's partly like playing in a fictional world that we are that appeals to us that we're excited about that we're we're very interested in and, and invested in but yeah i i, I take your point I, I suppose the the yes the question is what how does that not become not, not that it's necessarily mundane going back to these older sort of more old-fashioned scenarios and going a lot of the holodeck scenarios in star trek are about going back in time there's no there's no science fiction apart from captain proton which obviously is like <laughs> <laughs> a weird combination of science fiction and history so it's, uh, it's all yeah. about it's all about history and it, it, even you know uh these are the voyages it's literally the holodeck is a kind of historical document almost it's it's like a kind uh -huh. of history textbook somehow if you say we, so we, we, we don't have to talk about that one <laughs> <laughs> possibly a wildly inaccurate history textbook that gets all the facts yeah, wrong uh, <laughs> well uh, history textbooks throughout time have been wildly in inaccurate because well, it's true. always written by that the winner that's so. that's definitely a game that doesn't seem i mean you know, I'm glad that that simulation helped Riker in some slightly uh, undefinable way, but it didn't seem like it would be an enormously fun one to play through, to be honest, compared to, you know, some of the games that we see. But I, I guess there is that question. I mean, that, that brings up an interesting question of, in that episode, just to talk about it for a moment, however bad the episode might be, there is this kind of interesting idea of using the holodeck to resolve a problem or to mm -hmm. to work out a... You, you know, the idea, and, and I personally, I think they should have found a different way of, I think they could have brought in Riker and Troy without setting it in a 
next gen episode and it would have been much more believable and, and then having to find an episode where there was a dilemma that could plausibly have allowed enough time for someone to go to the holodeck and come back and that to have affected their decision is ridiculous writing <laughs> as far as i can see but I, but i think there is the kernel of an interesting idea there that you might go to the holodeck trying to kind of work that out and i heard a uh, recently an interesting um, episode of radio lab the podcast radio lab which was about virtual reality and they talked to this guy who tried out this program which was a kind of virtual reality psychoanalysis program, basically. Mm-hmm. And it was very very much in the model of Star Trek and the holodeck. Uh, it was basically, you have an encounter with Sigmund Freud. Obviously, Freud, you know, crops up in Star Trek uh, as, a, as a holographic character. And in this situation, this was uh, not a holodeck, this was VR, so you put on the headset. And the guy described, basically, he, he, he put on the headset and he found himself in this kind of old, ornate office. And he, he sort of wandered around the office, like we've been talking about, you know, exploring your environment and kind of looking around and so on. And then he realised there was someone sitting behind the desk and he walked up to the desk and sure enough, there was Sigmund Freud sitting behind the desk. And so he was a bit surprised. And then Sigmund Freud uh, <laughs> says to him in his sort of, you know, Austrian accent or whatever, you know, tell, tell me about something that is troubling you. Um, and so the guy had to think and then he, he told him about something. It turned out it was basically he'd made a decision to put his mother into a nursing home and he wasn't sure if he'd put her into the, the there was some decision as to whether to put her in a nursing home near to where he lived or near to where her friends lived and had he done the right thing and so on or should he have been seeing her more often or you know should he have picked a different nursing home and so on um and and the way the program worked was as soon as he'd asked the question the screen went blank and then he popped up again but he was uh, and and the key thing sorry i should have mentioned this was when he came into the room there was a mirror he walked past a mirror and he saw his his own face reflected in the mirror so his avatar in the virtual reality was based on a picture of himself so it was like he was definitely meant to be himself and then and so then the screen went blank and he he popped up again and this time he was sitting behind the desk and he had the beard and he he, you know he was dressed like Sigmund Freud and himself was standing on the other side of the desk looking like him you know with a kind of photo realistic version of him Um, and it played back exactly what he just said but his avatar speaking it obviously rather than you know him literally speaking it so it played back the audio and then he, as Freud, had to carry on the conversation and ask a question or, or say this or that or whatever. So he said something kind of typically Freudian like, you know, well, why do you think you feel that or whatever? And then it popped back again. And then he, he was back being himself again. And then Freud was sat behind the desk saying it in, but with a kind of Freud accent filter distorting his voice, saying in, in Freud's accent, you know, exactly whatever it was he said. And it, it sort of basically kept hopping back and forth. And each time it would replay whatever he'd last said. And so really all he was doing was having, putting, making both sides of the conversation, but having the last thing he'd said replayed back to him. But the fact that it was in this environment, the fact that he could physically see himself you know, it looked like him, the person that he was counselling. The fact that the counsellor was looked like Sigmund Freud, even though he knew that he was the one feeding him everything to say, meant that he said it had this real therapeutic impact on him, basically. And it, and it changed how he felt about himself and how he felt about the situation. And what he said was a, a large part of it was just seeing himself saying these things. He felt much more compassion for himself and he felt more able to kind of see himself and the situation he was in and it gave him a kind of objectivity on it. But also, I suppose, the fact of being in this environment, in this kind of, you know, consulting room and, and with this kind of great figure of, of, of psychoanalysis sat there helping him provided this sort of confidence somehow that the process was a valuable one and all this kind of thing. And it just sort of struck me that is, um, you know, not a million miles away, I suppose, in some ways from what Riker's trying to do in that episode, you know, go to the holodeck and get some kind of solace or some kind of help making a decision or whatever. But that is something that, that 
the development of new technologies is making possible that can have a you know it's not just about it's not really it's not really about gaming it's it's not about gaming at all but it is about the development of virtual reality technology having a kind of beneficial effect and i suppose for us virtual reality is the closest to the holodeck that we're likely frankly probably ever to get because the holodeck relies on a lot of pretty dubious physics <laughs> <laughs> and, and kind of you know imaginative writing but virtual reality you know something like ready player one is actually more imaginable in a way where everyone is physically strapped into a suit or strapped into a rig or something but everything they see smell you know taste uh, touch is, is simulated to feel real to them and that that seems more kind of believable and that might be more like the direction we'd be kind of going with, you know, in, in reality, it might not be stepping into an empty room, but it might be stepping into a pod and then kind of experiencing exactly the kind of things that people experience on the holodeck in Star Trek. Yeah, I can, I can see that. It's the way that I feel about it is that nothing is impossible, really, because there's so much we don't know about science still. So I, I fully want to believe that holodeck technology is possible. Uh, maybe not in the way that it's portrayed in Star Trek, but I want to feel like that it's possible because it's it would be um, an amazing tool. It doesn't. It's not just for gaming. It's not just for reliving a, a, an historical event. There's many ways it can be used. It can be used for instruction. It can be used like that episode when they when Riker was on trial for killing this guy, and they were mm, reconstructing mm. everyone's version of the events in the holodeck there was that episode of next gen that i can't remember the name of where they all started having weird dreams Mm -hmm. and they all get together and they recreate what they were seeing in their dreams in the holodeck thank you that's the one and they would be taking into like an alternate dimension and (laughs) having experiments done on them without their consent etc but that was a wonderful tool for them to all be able to create this thing so that they could get to the bottom of what was going on. So many wonderful ways to use it. Gaming uh, is just but one. But for the most part, the holodeck seems to be used as a diversion of some sort. Mm. And everybody needs a diversion. And if you're on a spaceship in the middle of nowhere, and the holodeck's all you got. Hey, if you want, go in there and program a simulation where you're at an amusement park. You can do whatever you want. Mm. And I find that fascinating. And kind and of realistic- wish that we had them. <laughs> and, and realistically, gaming is the kind of diversion. You know, if you were on a... I mean, I, I was going to say, if you were on a nuclear submarine, I've no idea whether you can take a PlayStation on a nuclear submarine, but let's assume that you can. If, if you were in a kind of confined space, you know, that is equivalent to a starship, uh, you, you know, that... You, you, yeah, you get shore leave now and then, but mostly your recreational pursuits. Yeah, you can, you know, they have the movie night, you can go and watch a film, you can kind of get together, you can go and have a drink maybe, but you are limited in terms of what you can do. And if you want to escape uh, from your environment, whether that's being stuck on a ship in the Delta Quadrant um, or, you know, being stuck on a submarine in the real world or, you know, whatever it is, um, gaming, I suppose, is one very effective uh, form of escape because it is so encompassing. Um I mean, obviously, you know, you might say I'm going to read a novel and that will be my escape. And in my imagination, I'll go to this other world and I'll I'll get involved in this story. And that's true, of course, as well, or watching a film. But I guess the fact of having the... It's not quite the same as virtual reality. It's not quite the same as the holodeck. It's not quite as real as that. You can't, you know, smell and taste it and everything. But there is the element. There's the, the, the visual element. There's the kind of oral element. There's the, you know, the... 
a good game does make you feel like you're in the moment somehow. And I remember being struck by this. This was when I was like a, a teenager, maybe. And it must have been when games were starting to get more sophisticated and they were starting to get more, you know, like the, the sort of development of the kind of first person game to the point of view where you could really, you could sort of, that, that, that barrier that there had been where obviously, yes, you sort of identify with Mario jumping from block to block. <laughs> but at the same time, you don't on any real level feel that you're yeah. Marin. You don't wince when he gets hurt or whatever. But there was some game, I can't remember what game it was, and something happened and I literally flinched and sort of jumped back from the computer. And I thought, oh. and, and I noticed it at the time, I thought, wow, that's a new a computer. A game has not done that to me before, but it made me feel just for that split second like I was in danger because my character in the game was in danger and I had like made that kind of connection somehow between the two. And obviously the holodeck sort of does that for you because it puts you in that position physically and everything around you is reinforcing that idea that you're really there. It, it is. That, that's gaming turned up to 11 right there. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. <laughs> because you're, you're, not, you're no longer just holding a controller and changing what happens on the screen. You are now in it. You mm. are the one running. You are the one hiding. You are the one shooting, if that's the kind of game you're playing. And it's a very, very different experience. Mm. So it's a good thing that those safety protocols are almost always on. Well, before we go, Brandy, I just wanted to ask you, obviously, the answer to this might be, might be kind of obvious, but if you were, if someone offered you a holodeck and said, what program would you want to play? What would you, what would you load up on there? Would it be one of the games that you play in real life? Would you play a holodeck version of that? Would it be would it be one of the games that we see people in Star Trek playing? Obviously not the Western, by the sounds of it. You wouldn't be, you wouldn't be going for Alexander's Western program. Uh, no, you thank know, would, you. It, would it be the big goodbye? Would it be uh, the, the James Bond fantasy? What would, um, would it be Beowulf? I don't know. You know, what, 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 what would be your sort of, where would it take you? Oh my goodness. That is a difficult question to answer because there are so many possibilities. I mean, you could even program a movie and live a movie. It's just, mm -hmm. oh. Probably my first instinct would be to start with a video game that I'm familiar with. Simply because it's familiar, and with it being in a whole new medium, I would want some sense of knowing what I needed to do so that I didn't feel completely stressed out. So I would probably actually... <laughs> this sounds so silly. I would probably program in the very first uh, RPG video game that I played on our very first disc system, which was a PlayStation. And I would create the world of Final Fantasy VII and just play that until uh, I got to the end. And because that is a massive game, especially for the day. That was 1997. And it was three discs long. And it had this complex story and yes it was the graphics for the time were oh but now you know by our standards they're just yeah that's 16 bit stuff going on here and yes the cutscenes were lovely but still it was you know oh gosh 21 years later mm. but i i just loved that world and that story and those characters so much that that's probably the first thing i would do is go back and play in the holodeck Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> mm. And that's interesting because it is a, you know, it is a fantastical world. It is partly about that kind of world building, the kind of appeal yes. of all that. I mean, I was going to say, you know, the, the, the thing, of course, that 
people in Star Trek can't do that probably most of us might like to do is play Star Trek. I mean, you know, that would probably be mine. We'd be going, you know, hang out on Deep Space mm. Nine for, for a while or, or, you know, or the Enterprise or whatever. But I guess yeah. it is it is partly the... Similarly, there's that element of um, of the kind of fantastical. And I guess it's funny in a way that in Star Trek, we don't see that. We don't see anyone going, you know, why, uh, obviously there are licensing issues, but aside from that, why do we not see anyone playing Lord of the Rings? Do you know what I mean? Right. Why do we see them playing Beowulf, which is a kind yeah. of... Uh, well, I suppose that is a you know that is a fantasy scenario with a monster and everything, but they're not playing. They're not playing kind of you know, a fantasy in the kind of sci-fi and fantasy sense in that kind of genre sense that we might associate with it, uh, which is is funny in a way. And we don't, and you know, in, in, even in the Beowulf one, we don't really, we never even see the monster in the program because it's been replaced by these weird alien yeah. what's its. We certainly don't get as far as the dragon. Uh, you know, we kind of don't get that. Um, you know, Game of Thrones. Even they could be, they could be playing Game of Thrones if they if they want to. I imagine Quark could have a good, you know, sideline in that. <laughs> um, but we don't. We see these kind of quite historical, quite kind of, in a way, quite sort of tame storylines. In in some ways, you, you know, even like like you were saying, the Western. It's it's very much the kind of traditional sanitized version of the Western, mm. rather than the kind yeah. of you know gritty edgier sort of version of it they, they, they they're, they're playing the sort of tamer end of entertainment but then maybe that's just starfleet and that's the federation you know maybe once you you know if you go to some other planets and check out their holo technology who knows what's going on over there you know who knows so what the true. what the holo suites on chronos are, are up to probably something pretty <laughs> bloody and <laughs> and grim uh, I totally agree with that here here's the thing I know about myself I would not do well playing star trek uh, I mm-hmm. would be the person who would be Guinan in 10 forward. I am not cut out to be a Starfleet officer. I don't think like a Starfleet officer. I don't behave like a Starfleet officer. And I don't think I could do that in a game. Therefore, I would be the person that is not a Starfleet officer on board a starship. <laughs> so but Guinan then, for me. <laughs> yeah, but but Captain Picard is hopeless as Dixon Hill. <laughs> he loves it, you know, at least to begin with. <laughs> Obviously he gets better at it. But I mean, that's part of the appeal, isn't it? Is of, of being able to do something that you step outside your comfort zone in a way. And, you know, in the yeah. game, you'd be great. You'd be captain. Yeah, I have no interest in being captain, though. Okay. It doesn't appeal to me. It doesn't appeal to me. I like watching it. I like watching right, it. fair enough. I don't want to be it. So ah. I, n- there's not even a fantasy of being in command. Not my thing. I've been manager stuff before. I don't like being in charge at all. So well, that is my, fascinating. I mean, there's that there's that conversation in Future's End, isn't there, where they Neelix and Kess get hooked on kind of 1990s soap operas, uh, <laughs> and they and they they well, I think one of them says, you know, there's there's this real pleasure in just letting it wash over you and just kind of. You know, absorbing mm-hmm. the narrative and not having to be involved, you know, that kind of, yes. you know, being an observer. So there you go. It's, you yeah. Know, it takes all sorts. It's <laughs> Gaming has <laughs> it its place, does. but, you know, it's no, not necessarily the be all and the end all, even with a holodeck. No, no, there it's a nice diversion and that's mm. what it's supposed to be. And when it starts to take over other parts of your life, that's when you need to take a step back and wonder what it is in you that is causing this to happen. So I've never had that problem. Uh, I know when to quit because I'm an adult. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Um, Well, before we go, Brandy, why don't you let our listeners know where they can find you if they want to find you elsewhere on the Track FM network or if they want to find you on social media or who knows? I don't know if they want to find you in some online 
gaming uh, <laughs> forum. I don't know whether that's possible or not. You can tell how much I know about computer games, but or at least modern computer games. Tell our listeners where they can find you if they if they don't already know, which I'm sure they do. Oh, they might not all know. Uh, you can find me lurking in the Babel Conference on Facebook, of course. Uh, you'll also find me on the podcast Warp 5 on the Trek FM network with my good friends Brandon Shea-Matala and Patrick Devlin. And we talk about Star Trek Enterprise. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brandywine12. Brandy is spelled with an I, and 12 is a number. I also do a podcast with my wonderful husband, Dave, called The Dark Corner Podcast, which you can find at darkcornerpodcast.com. We do talk about a lot of pop culture things. And basically, we're, we're big nerds, too. So we talk about just whatever we want in pop culture and nerd stuff. But we do it sort of from a different, darker point of view, and there are colorful metaphors in that. So please don't listen if you're offended by colorful metaphors. <laughs> Something which is noticeably absent from the holodeck generally and slightly implausibly in Star Trek, I think. You know, Big, we, don't, yep. mm. we don't get too much of that. I was just thinking you were talking about social media, talking about Twitter and so on. Of course, one thing we could have talked about really is this idea of gamification. I don't know if you're sort of familiar mm. with that concept mm-hmm. that basically, particularly in software programming, increasingly uh, with social networking programs that that gaming models are brought into those programs as a way to make people keep using them. So something like Twitter, you know, the number of likes, number of retweets, there's kind of emphasis on these kind of measures of popularity or success or something, not being a million miles away from the kind of games where you're sort of building your experience points or building your reputation or building your kind of status in a sense that, um, you know, something like Star Trek Online, it's not necessarily about reaching the end of the game, but it's about building yourself as a character or building yourself mm. as a sort of brand almost. That Some people would say some of these kind of social networking platforms, they they hook you in by giving you these little rewards constantly. You know, how many people retweeted me? How many people did this? And that that's, uh, you know, I guess when you're talking about addiction or whatever, that's, that's one reason that people can get quite <laughs> absorbed in these things. So, you know, gaming, I guess, is... Uh, you know, however we feel about it, it's it's a part of our lives in that sense. It's yes. kind of it's you know it taps into our our deepest wishes and uh, and desires and sometimes insecurities and and uh, you know you know it, it kind of um, it's it's a big part of our culture. You know, it always has been. You know, one way or another, whether it's jousting or or you know all the <laughs> way up to the latest Tomb Raider game or the latest. Um, you know, expansion for Star Trek Online or whatever it is. It's it's something that has been a part of human culture one way or another for a while. So, um, and certainly a part of Star Trek. Um, but it's been great, Brandy, having you on the show. It's been great to have you come on and, and talk about this. Um, uh, it's been fun talking about gaming. It's, it's nice to do a fun topic, I have to say. Clara and I have been doing a few pretty dark topics recently. So it's nice to be able to say, you know, with no qualms, it's been fun talking about uh, gaming in Star Trek this week. But that's not all we've been doing on Trek FM at the moment. So here's a listen to some of the other things you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. It's a white uniform and you're dealing with medical blood, all this other stuff, fluids. Yeah. That thing ain't going to stay white. So in my head, they're treated that it just doesn't even stick. It just repels off it. Earl Grey. So Picard says he won't transfer anyone off the ship, but as a compromise, get ready for this. As a compromise, he will reassign Worf as Wesley's tutor. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yes. Put some discipline in that boy. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. This is like a choice you could, I, I don't know. I, I would imagine. And I really like this story. Like now. It. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's more later, but 
Yeah, Worf is Wesley's tutor. Melodic treks. And, uh, you know, I talked to the producers when I first did the show, and the first thing they had me do was take a combination of the dun da 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 you know, Sandy Courage, wonderful horn theme, and uh, Jerry's da 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 you know, his theme for the first movie, and, and make a theme out of those, so combine them. So I did it electronically, and they said, good enough. And I said, I look, this is not my specialty. And they said, never mind, you got it. So 18 years later, you know, that was it. The 602 Club. I did definitely feel what you're saying, Matt, like it was a, a Bond greatest hits in that opening sequence. Um, you've got Russians again, well, or supposed to be in Russia. You've got, um, you know, a group of... Um, terrorists all gathering together about you know all these different weapons and you're trying to id people and then you know we of course bring back in m um and then she's having to argue now with um the government and the military um and then you know i like that they kind of bring in bond in a subtle way calling him white knight this time um that was cool but yeah, I, I think otherwise it feels very familiar, but in a great way, um, I feel like Arnold dealing with the music um, and then the actors as well taking good direction made a lot of intensity in that scene. So you don't feel like you're moving into the film slowly. They're coming at you full force and then, you know, Bond runs off with the plane. Um, so I, I really liked it. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation at the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. We are Primitive Culture, and we are your hosts. My name is Clara Cook, and you can find me on Twitter at Clara Jean MC. My co-host is Duncan Barrett, and you can find Duncan on Twitter, at Barrett's Books. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website patron zone it requires a great deal of money to produce host and distribute these shows each month we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team again you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek now i'd like to express a big thank you to our executive producer 
Amy Nelson. You can find Amy Nelson on the Earl Grey podcast on Trek FM. So thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended all